Hello everyone. Welcome to our episode of In Conversation with IPR and Competition Law. I am Ishita Borua, the host of this podcast's episode. I hope you have listened to our weekend episodes too. Today we have Mr. Emmanuel Kolaole. Okay, sir, who is a senior lecturer of International Intellectual Property Law at the University of Edinburgh. His research interests include international and comparative aspects of intellectual property law. Specifically, his research explores the interface between intellectual property and other branches of international law, such as international trade law, international investment law, and international human rights law. He is equally interested in the relationship between intellectual property and development. Today, we'll be discussing his book, The Inter- between intellectual property and investment law and inter, in, uh, intertextual an- analysis published by Edward Elgar in 2021. Hello, Professor Emmanuel. Welcome to our podcast. Hi, Shefa. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Thank you, sir. Uh, so, sir, before I begin today's session, um, I'd like to ask you, what led to your interest to thrive towards intellectual property rights? your journey towards becoming a senior lecturer of international intellectual property law at the University of Edinburgh and also as you are the program director of LLM in intellectual property rights at the University of Edinburgh. I'd also like to know um, about uh, the Script Research Center at Uni- uh, University of Edinburgh Law School which focuses on IPR research and your aim as to the write the book that is the inter- uh, interface between intellectual property and investment law. Thank you, Shetha. Uh, yes, so uh, to start at the very beginning, what led my interest in IP? Um, really, uh, uh, specifically for me, my main area of uh, in- research interest is international IP law. I did study IP at the undergrad level. Uh, while I was in Nigeria, I also was introduced to uh, international law from a developmental perspective. That also helped inform my interest in international law as well as to development and developing countries. But I think really my interest was fully developed in IP when I went to study, when I went to study at the National University of Singapore. Uh, I did a master's in IP and technology law there. I took a particular course there on international patent law and policy, and that really sparked my interest in international IP law. I went on to University College Cork in Ireland to do a PhD in international patent law, uh, where I looked at the interface between patent rights and human rights, specifically focusing on the issue of access to medicine. So, and after I finished my PhD, I joined the University of uh, Edinburgh. Uh, as, a, as a lecturer in international IP law and today I'm a senior lecturer at the university. I'm also, as you said, the program director of the LLM program at the university. So that's been my journey really. Uh, it's taken um, over 10 years, um, more than 10 years to do all of that. Uh, so to, to, to come to your question about the Scripps Center uh, at the University of Edinburgh, at Edinburgh Law School. So this is a center that brings together uh, all of my uh, all of my colleagues who are interested in IP, in IT, and in media law, and other areas related to that. So we look at things involving 
um, the intersection between law, technology, and society from a multidisciplinary and multidirectional perspective. Um, we also, uh, apart from IP and IT and data protection, we also look at other areas like artificial intelligence and algorithm, algorithm justice and things like that. Um, uh, apart from that, we, we do organize from time to time events like guest lectures and workshops. And we are also involved in a number of research projects. And um, we also do have a journal, uh, Script, Script Ed, uh, a journal of law, technology, and society, um, where um, we have contributions from established scholars and also emerging scholars. And some of uh, and some students are also involved in the process as well. So uh, quite a number of things happening at the law school related to IP and technology. And as to what led to my interest to write this particular monograph on the interface between IP and investment law, I was interested in looking at this because, as I said, my main interest is to look at IP within the context of international law. So I look at IP within the, uh, as it relates to international trade law, international human rights law, and international investment law, as just like the introduction. So this is one of the areas, uh, one of the strands of my uh, broader research agenda. One of the reasons why I'm interested in this is that for a long time, people have been looking at IP and WTO law for in recent times. It's been a number of recent high profile cases. There's been an increased uh, uh, scrutiny of the interface between IP and investment treaties. Australia has released to uh, the key thing I wanted to look at was how it affects the, the policy space available to states under international IP law. Right? How does that intersection affect that policy space? Yeah, does it narrow it down? Does it expand it? That that was really the key thing that drew my interest in this Now let's look at how to sort of reconcile or synthesize the objectives of both regimes in a way that will lead to development, right? In a way that will facilitate development. So that that, that was really my main aim. So trying to find a way to synthesize or synchronize the objectives of both regimes. Uh, that's the IP regime and the international investment law regime. Mm. Uh, sir, uh, what is the central question that this book seeks to answer regarding the interface between international intellectual property law and uh, international investment law? Right, so the key question uh, that, I, that I try to answer in the book is specifically how should the terms and standards of protection contained in investment treaties be interpreted and applied in investment disputes involving IP rights? So that's the key question I try to answer in the book. Sir, uh, how have recent high-profile claims uh, brought by corporate actors against states related to intellectual property before investment tribunals impacted the relationship between intellectual property and investment law? Right, so that's a very good question. But I think before I uh, address that question, it may be helpful to some of the listeners to give a brief background uh, regarding the relationship between IP and investment law, especially for those listeners who may not be familiar with the principles of investment law. Right, so the origins of international investment law uh, is traceable to the protection of aliens and their property abroad under customary international law. However, as we know it today, international investment law in its current form emerged after the era of decolonization and its aim, its main objective is to stimulate foreign direct investment, popularly called FDI, 
and to also promote economic development. That is the main goal of the regime, or at least in theory, that is how we should work. But so, but today, international investment law has evolved from its roots in customary international law. It's now largely based on international investment agreements and case law derived from the decisions of investment tribunals. Right, so investment agreements are agreements between the host state, which is the recipient of foreign investment, and the home state of the foreign investor. And it can take many forms. So examples of investment agreements include bilateral investment treaties, popularly called BITs, and you also have investment chapters in trade agreements. So a good example is NAFTA, now called the USMCA, that's the US-Mexico-Canada agreement. You also have CETA, that's the agreement between Canada and the European Union. And you have CPTPP and you have the RC. So there are a number of trade agreements uh, that contain investment uh, chapters. Uh, a good example, another example is the recent uh, AFCTA, the African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement, and where they recently also adopted a protocol on investment. Again, that's another example of an investment agreement. So investment agreements usually confer a number of protections on, inv- on investors, uh, and this standard of protection varies between different investment treaties or agreements but they usually contain the following standards among others so I'll, I'll just briefly run through four of those standards so first of all you have rules prohibiting states from discriminating in favor of domestic investors that's the national treatment standard and secondly you have rules prohibiting discrimination between foreign investors that is the most favored nation treatment standard or the mfn standard then thirdly, you have rules prohibiting direct and indirect expropriation of investment assets without compensation. That is the expropriation standard. And you also have rules requiring the fair and equitable treatment of foreign investors or foreign investments. That is the fair and equitable treatment or the FET standard. So that are the four main standards that you usually have in almost all investment treaties. Right? There are other standards, but I'll just mention those four because of time. Uh, now, a number of investment agreements permit or allow foreign investors to sue host states before investment tribunals. This method of investment, this method of dispute settlement, I'm sorry, is called the investor state dispute settlement system or the ISDS system. Now, the implication of the investor state dispute settlement system is that it can be used by investors, usually corporate actors to challenge both legislative measures and court decisions of host states before investment tribunals. So in recent times, there's been an increase in the number of investment treaties and investment disputes in international investment law. Some of these disputes involve IP rights, and it's because of this that some IP scholars are concerned about the interface between international IP law and international investment law. Okay, uh, so also, uh, what are some criticisms and concerns uh, that has been recently expressed about the interface between uh, intellectual property and uh, investment law? Uh, so particularly related to challenges against intellectual property measures aimed at addressing public health issues. Right, so that's a very good question. So, I mean, flowing from my uh, response to the last question, uh, if I could just add to that. So, okay. the, the key point to note here is that um, IP rights have been included in investment treaties for more than six decades now, right? So it's not a new thing per se. So the interface for the relationship between IP and investment law 
it's not actually a new or recent phenomenon. However, because of the, some of the recent high-profile claims uh, brought by some corporate actors, some companies against host states, uh, it is this that has led to the increased scrutiny of the interface between both regimes, between IP and investment law, by both policymakers and scholars. So I'll give you some of the examples of some of those high-profile claims. So. Um, Philip Morris, a tobacco company, brought claims against both Australia and Uruguay challenging um, the tobacco control measures implemented by those two states, you know, as particularly as it relates to their trademarks. There was also another high-profile case brought by Eli Lilly, a pharmaceutical company, against Canada relating to uh, Canada's uh, pharmaceutical patent law, right? So, so those two, those examples it's one of the reasons why states and um, scholars and policymakers became worried about the link between these two fields. So again, as I said, it's not a recent phenomenon, but because of those high profile claims, particularly as it relates to the ability of states to regulate IP measures, that's why scholars are concerned. Now, some of the concerns are also rooted in the general criticisms against the investment law regime. So, so some scholars draw a distinction between the object and purpose of IP law on the one hand and the object and purpose of investment law on the other hand. So they, they, they take the view that both regimes are, are so distinct and so disparate that you know, they should really be separated. And there are also concerns relating to inconsistencies between the decisions of GWTO judicial bodies on IP issues and the decisions of investment tribunals on IP issues. So there are worries that there could be inconsistencies where they're both addressing IP issues. Another criticism is the fact that uh, it has been noted, and I think this is somewhat legitimate, that the ISDS system, the investor state dispute settlement system has been criticized for its potential to cause regulatory chill due to the cost of litigation and the potential for a huge compensation awards against it. So, some states may be unwilling to implement certain measures uh, because they are worried that they will be sued. And even if they win, the cost of litigation might be too much for them to, to handle. And if they lose, there's a potential that they, they will be asked to pay corporate actors quite a lot, quite a lot of money, right, to settle the uh, there's also criticisms regarding the lack of consistency and coherence because there is no binding precedent in the investment law regime. Um, and coming back to some of the uh, standards of protection, so the expropriation standard is problematic because there's a controversy regarding how to draw a distinction between legitimate lawful regulatory measures and regulatory expropriation. I will say I can say more about that uh, in the course of this podcast. And the FET standard is also problematic because of its ambiguous and unclear scope. So those are some of the criticisms that, uh, and concerns that have been expressed about the interface between IP and investment law. Um, so how have investment tribunals interpreted the fair and equitable treatment, also known as FET, standard in intellectual property rights cases? Yes, very good. So, um, uh, just to provide a very brief background regarding the FET standard, as I said in my last, in, in my response to your last question, the FET standard is somewhat problematic because it's, it has a very ambiguous and unclear scope. And because of this, it's a favorite standard that a lot of investors rely on when they have claims, uh, when they bring claims against host states. Uh, so, there are a number of well recognized elements 
of the equity standard. So these elements include uh, the protection of an investor's legitimate expectations, uh, the prohibition of arbitrariness, uh, discrimination and, and denial of justice. Other elements include due process and transparency, right? Uh, so in two of the prominent cases involving IP and investment law, I'm focusing here on the Philip Morris case and the Eli Lilly case, there's been some pronouncement on some of these elements. I'll focus on just two key elements here. The legitimate expectations and arbitrariness, right? So in, in, in both the Philip Morris case and the Eli Lilly case, uh, the, the tribunals in both cases rule that the grant of IP rights do not create any legitimate expectations that the IP rights will not be limited, regulated, or revoked, right? So I think that was clear, and that sort of preserved the IP policy space of states. Now, with regard to the issue of arbitrariness, in Philip Morris, a majority of the tribunal chose to respect the state's regulatory discretion. So they chose to defer to the state's regulatory discretion to regulate uh, the packaging of tobacco products. So they respected, but that was edition of two to one arbitrators. So two of the arbitrators chose to respect the choice made by Uruguay. There, there was a dissenting opinion by one of the arbitrators. In the L.I. Lilly case, the tribunal was unanimous in respecting the public policy decision of the Canadian states and the rule that that particular uh, patent law policy was not arbitrary. However, as shown with the, with, with the example of dissenting opinion in the Philip Morris case, the decisions of investment tribunals in this context can sometimes be unpredictable. And again, that feeds in some of the criticisms and concerns that have been leveled against uh, um, the, the ISDS system as a whole. Uh, so, um, how can an uh, intertextual approach be employed in the analysis of the interface between international intellectual property law and international investment law? Yeah, so this brings me to the, the, the key theme of my book on the interface between IP and investment law. So in the book, I suggested that um, in resolving IP disputes uh, in the context of investment law, an intertextual perspective should be adopted, right? So uh, if you think about it under international law, to resolve a dispute, you have to bear in mind three key things. The jurisdiction of a tribunal, right? The applicable law, and then the rules of interpretation. So what I propose is that as it relates to the interface between IP and investment, specifically when you're talking about applicable law and the rules of interpretation, the rules of international IP law should play a role. So two key things, let me just summarize them in, in two keywords. First of all, my, my proposal, the intertextual perspective approach requires that the rules of international IP law should be regarded as part of the applicable law in investment disputes involving IP rights. Secondly, it also requires that the rules of international IP law should be taken into account when you are interpreting the terms and provisions of investment treaties in investment disputes involving IP rights. And this is in line with Article 313C of the Vienna Convention of the Law of Treaties. So those are the two key recommendations I make in my book, and, and I think that can help in, in, in thinking about the interface between IP and investment. Law. 
yes right sir um so um the next question that i would like to ask you is that um how can an uh, intertextual approach be useful when applying the uh, fct that is the fair and equitable treatment standard and the rules regarding the prohibition of ex, uh, expropriation without compensation in investment dispute involving ip rights right so i i think if this intertextual perspective is followed as i've suggested as long as the old state's ip measures are consistent or in accordance with the rules of international ip law then the host state should be shielded from liability for claims based on either the fpt standard or the expropriation standard right so let, let's focus on the applicable law as i mentioned in my in response to the last question um, so if you look at a number of investment treaties they do some of them contain rules regarding the applicable law that should be considered whenever there's a dispute so they con- so some of them contain rules on applicable law some investment treaties do not and there's really a reference to um, a default rule so for instance they they will refer to the exit convention uh, i won't go into too much details about that but the key point i want to emphasize here and i and as i explained in my book is that a common element with regard to the issue of applicable law in in both in investment treaties that contain a provision on applicable law and in investment treaties where, where there's no reference to applicable law a common element is the fact that there's usually a reference to international law as part of the applicable law so either directly in the investment treaty or indirectly there's a reference to international law as part of the applicable law now so this is my argument an investment tribunal that is faced with an investment dispute involving ip rights should consider the rules of international ip law as codified in the multilateral ip treaties such as the trips agreements those should be considered as part of the applicable rules of international law right so and this should especially be the case where the parties to the relevant investment treaties are also parties to the relevant ip treaties such as the trips agreement so so we are the we are both parties or the parties to the investment treaties are also parties to the ip treaties such as the trips agreement the trips agreement should by implication be considered part of the applicable law in resolving any ip disputes in the context of that investment treaty and i think that will be helpful in terms of shielding hostages from liability as long as their ip measures the ip measures of the hostages are in accordance with the rules of international ip um, sir can you uh, provide an example of a case where one can say that an intertextual approach was employed by a tribunal in an investment dispute involving uh, intellectual property rights that's an excellent question and i, I think a, a very good example uh, of of such a case is the philip morris case right it provides an excellent example of where an investment tribunal employed what i would call an intertextual approach in in resolving a particular question right so in in the philip morris case again that was a case involving philip morris and uruguay uh, concerning the the tobacco packaging regulations implemented by uruguay that was challenged by philip morris one of the questions that the tribunal had to resolve was whether or not a trademark confers a positive right to use or only a negative right to protect against use by third parties 
So that was one of the questions that the tribunal had to answer in that case. So in resolving this question, the tribunal took into account the rules of international IP law as contained in both the Paris Convention on Industrial Property Rights and the TRIPS Agreement. So the tribunal said that there's nothing in the Paris Convention that provides a positive right to use a trademark. It also correctly said that nowhere in the TRIPS Agreement is there a provision for a positive right to use. So I think this example demonstrates that an investment tribunal can and should take into account the rules of international IP law as applicable law when when they are resolving investment disputes involving IP rights. Uh, Sir, can measures relating to intellectual property be excluded from the scope of the rules on expropriation in investment agreements? Yes, this is an excellent question. I think to provide some context as to why this question is important, I'll step back a bit and explain more about why, why there's a controversy in this area. So if you look at all, almost all investment treaties, there's usually a provision that prohibits illegal expropriation, right? So there's a distinction here between legal and illegal expropriation. Under international law, states are free to exercise their power to expropriate as long as certain conditions are met. So what is really prohibited in international law is illegal is illegal expropriation. So illegal expropriation is what is forbidden. So for an expropriation to be legal, the following conditions must be met. It must be for a public purpose, it must be non-discriminatory, it must follow due process of law, and there must be compensation. So these conditions can be found in a number of investment treaties. Now, at the same time, there's also a distinction between direct and indirect expropriation. So direct expropriation is state action which deprives an investor of legal title to his investment. Indirect expropriation is any measure that substantially deprives an investor of the benefits flowing from his investment, even though there is no formal taking of of the property. So it's a measure that is equivalent, in a sense, to expropriation. So a measure in this context includes administrative, legislative, or judicial acts performed by any branch of the state, or any entity acting on behalf of the state. So, and there are different types of indirect expropriation. So you can have judicial expropriation or regulatory expropriation. So these days, indirect expropriations are more common than direct expropriations. So the, this is where the problem is. The problem is how, how do you draw a distinction between legitimate regulation in the public interest and regulatory expropriation? So it's a very thorny issue and different tribunals employ different um, methods to, to try to distinguish between legitimate or lawful regulation in the public interest and what you can call regulatory expropriation. So, but to address or to avoid this issue in the context of IP rights, some investment treaties include a carve-out clause you know, for measures relating to IP rights. So, so this kind of clause will exclude IP measures from the scope of the investment treaty as long as those measures are consistent with the rules of international IP law, such as the TRIPS agreement. A good example of this is Article 3.6 of the India-Brazil BIT of 2020. It contains a clause like this. This type of clause will actually exclude IP measures from both the expropriation and the FET standard. Now, some other treaties contain carve-out clauses that only exclude measures 
concerning IP from the scope of the expropriation standard in the treaty as long as those measures are consistent with the TRIPS agreement. So for instance, Article 14, Article 14.86 of the USMCA contains a clause like that. So it, ends, it excludes IP measures from the scope of the expropriation standard in the USMCA as long as those measures are consistent with the provisions of the TRIPS agreement. Uh, sir, can uh, measure, measures relating to intellectual property be excluded from the scope of the fair and equitable treatment standard, also known as FET standard, in the investment agreements? Yes, yes. So, similarly to what, what obtains under the expropriation standard, it is possible to have a clause an investment treaty to specifically exclude IP from the scope of the FET standard. It's not as common as what, what you have for the expropriation standard. But as I, as I noted, um, some treaties do include a carve-out clause from IP measures, generally speaking. And as long as those measures are consistent with the rules of international investment law, they are excluded from the scope of the investment treaty as a whole. So when it, when it, when a measure is excluded from the scope of the investment treaty, it means that both the investments, both the expropriation standard and the FET standard, would not apply to that measure, right? So as I've said, one example of that is the India-Brazil BIT of 2020 that contains such a clause. So this type of clause will exclude IP measures from both the expropriation and the FET standards. Uh, sir, um, as we have come to the end of the question answer session of this podcast episode so the last question from your point of view i would want to ask that um some of the life lessons and mottos that you'd want to uh, tell the listeners and also the law students in general as you are also a professor and a senior lecturer so as a point of view of a professor to the students and also audience that you'd like to tell them about life lessons and mottos that they should follow in their life Right. Thank you for that interesting question. I'm usually very wary of uh, <laughs> providing life advice because I think everybody's experience in life is uh, is unique and different. Well, having said that, uh, when I was uh, growing up in, in Nigeria, a wise teacher once said that um, um, your decision determines your destiny. Right. I mean, there, there are different ways to think about that. Um, one way to interpret that is to look at it from um, the perspective that there are three key words here decision determination and destination right so uh, the point i'm trying to make is if you make up your mind if you decide that you want to achieve a particular objective you have a destination in mind that you want to get to uh, at times in life you uh, deciding is alone is not enough you also have to be determined you have to um you have to be disciplined because there will be obstacles, there will be challenges, there will be difficulties. Um, but as long as you are determined and you're disciplined, all, all other things being equal, you will get to your destination. So um, I, I, hopefully that will be useful to somebody. Yeah, that's what I can say. Yes, thank, thank you, sir. Uh, thank you, sir, for like explaining us everything about um, the intersection between international IP law and uh, its intersection with the international investment law and also discussing some aspects from your book 
that is the interface between intellectual property and investment law and which is an intertextual analysis which was published by Edward Elgar in 2021 um and i think we all listeners should take note of this motos and life lesson from emmanuel sir and also thank you emmanuel sir it was a pleasure to have you on our podcast and discuss the interface between intellectual property and investment law and i would also like to thank all the listeners for tuning in to today's episode and emmanuel sir i hope you enjoyed today's session too yes i did thank you so much for the invitation and the opportunity to um, discuss my research and uh, one of my monographs on your podcast i had a very good time doing this thank you very much thank you sir um for questions suggestions and recommendations please feel free to contact us on our twitter instagram and linkedin accounts thank you everyone for listening to the episode of the book discussion and about sir's experience on the whole intersection between international ip law and investment law i hope to host more talk shows and this way we all will learn together the aspects and prospects of ipr and competition law this is in conversation with ipr and competition law see you soon in the next episode